Hello, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Thanks for joining me. I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. I'm also a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. I have an online functional medicine practice at evanbrand.com where I've helped over 3,000 clients around the globe, literally every little corner, every little nook and cranny of this planet. There's people suffering and not getting answers with conventional medicine. And I come in to hopefully save the day for these people by getting the proper testing done and then implementing some functional medicine strategies, which could include nutritional therapy, specific herbs, botanicals, supplements, nutrients, amino acids, whatever we need to get people fueled up and back to their normal, optimal human functioning state, which is a rare thing in this world. After testing thousands of children and adults, everyone's nutrient deficient, even if they're eating organic, grass-fed, they're carnivores, they're vegetarians, you name it. Every walk of life is struggling, and we see this on paper. And it's very, very humbling when you think you've done everything right and you see the labs that point to why you're feeling the way you feel. And one of those big issues that we see clinically all the time, fatigue is probably number one and a close second is digestive issues, gut issues. I've been the gut guy for over a decade. I've seen so many parasite infections. I had my own parasites. I had H. pylori. And one of those things that comes along with that is bloating. So that's what today's episode is all about. It's with my buddy, Dr. J. We're going to dive into hormonal bloating versus digestive bloating. How do you know the difference? What does a digestive bloat look like versus a hormonal bloat? And then how do you address that from the testing perspective? And then we'll also give you some ideas and strategies about supplements you may be able to implement to help that. Now, some may say, oh, that's just a vanity thing, right? My bloating, I look six months pregnant. But no, it's more than just the vanity. It is a clue for an underlying issue. And it could be stemming from your gut. But in many cases, these females that we see clinically also have hormonal disruption. This could be due to years of birth control. This could be due to mycotoxins, pesticides, you name it. The modern world is full of endocrine disruptors. Did you see? New research came out showing that reverse osmosis water filters are putting nanoplastics into your water. I've never felt good about RO systems. I like and use carbon-based systems. I cover more in my healthy home course, which is called Sick Building Solutions. If you want to learn more about air, water, all my testing strategies, how do I create a healthy home, a home oasis, I call it, well, water filtration is a key to that. And there's a lot of hormone disrupting chemicals in the food supply as well. So I could go on a rant about that, but we'll get into the podcast here in just a minute. I want to say thank you so much to everyone on the Instagram page. It's MR, like Mr. Evan Brand. About 37,000 of you all are there. And I posted a reel just a few days ago about electrolytes. You know, I've seen Element, Rob Wolf's behind that and some other partners, I believe. Electrolytes have become very popular and I've used electrolytes clinically for years. But what we do that's different and better, and I don't know why they're not doing it. Honestly, it's probably just profit is I'm using nutrients. We're adding extra nutrients. So for example, If you look at Element, you look at any of these other popular liquid IV, some of those other big brands now, it's mainly just a salt-based product. And maybe there's some natural flavor or stevia or monk fruit, and that's it. And that's cool. It's better than nothing. But there are key nutrients and specific amino acids you need to really help balance your electrolytes. One of those is taurine. Taurine, yes. One of the people commented on the reel, do you get that from meat? The answer is yes. But a six-ounce steak, assuming you have good digestion, assuming you have enough hydrochloric acid, assuming you don't have infections robbing you of your nutrients, 
maybe you get 50 to 60 milligrams of taurine. That's simply not enough. So in my hydration essentials formula, which I love, I've been drinking it every day. My wife and I think it helps significantly. Like my energy level at the end of the night, we were putting the kids to bed last night. And usually, you know, you know when you got three kids, by bedtime, you're tired. And bedtime came around and I felt great. I was like, you know what? If you said you want to jump in the car and go drive for six hours right now, I could do it. So that's a great thing with electrolytes. And you can use taurine. You can use ribose. We have vitamin C in there as well. These are nutrients that in combination help you to stay very, very, not only focused from a mental clarity perspective, but also just steady on your feet. You know, we've seen so many issues with POTS, vertigo, dizziness, long COVID issues, and a lot of people have electrolyte and mineral imbalances, especially if you're battling mold toxicity. It screws up MSH. It screws up ADH, which is antidiuretic hormone. What does that mean? It just means you need more electrolytes. You need some taurine in your life, some ribose in your life. So check out the Hydration Essentials product. We just added a new subscribe feature to the store at AuraRoots.com. That's A-U-R-A Roots, R-O-O-T-S.com. You can check out the Hydration Essentials formula. Get you some of that and try it. Let me know what you think. Let me know how you feel on it. Give it a good few weeks. Let your kids have some too. They need it just as much, especially if they've battled mold. And if you're a mom listening, if you've had mold, they've got mold. So that also affects their mineral and nutrient balance. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. If you need help clinically, I do still offer one-on-one functional medicine consults. That's at my site, evanbrand.com. You can still book 15 minutes with me for free no strings attached. We can chat about your symptoms and see if I can help you. And then if you are a do-it-yourself person, maybe you don't want me to hold your hand. That's fine. I trust you. If you've got the oomph to do it, check out the Functional Medicine Teaching Academy that I have. You can get access to the Better Belly course. We have a Confident Coach program if you're wanting to build a health practice of your own or grow your health practice, maybe in the online space. We have the Sick Building Solutions We have the Functional Fatigue Solutions, which is a massive, massive, amazing opportunity to recover from chronic fatigue. These are things I've done clinically, and I teach you the behind the scenes of what I'm doing so that you can help yourself and you can help others. So without further ado, here we go. Hey guys, Dr. Justin Marcajani here. Welcome back to the podcast with Evan Brand. Evan, my friend, how are we doing, brother? Oh, doing good. Good to see you, man. Good to see you as well. I'm really excited to dive in today's topic. Uh, We're going to be talking about digestive bloat versus hormone bloat. What's the difference? What's the root cause? How can you distinguish it? Uh, What to look for, right? We want to really dive into the root cause because we have so many patients that come in that have hormonal imbalances, whether it's PMS issues, whether it's perimenopause, menopause. A lot of times there's just overarching digestive issues in the background, whether it's SIBO or H. pylori or fungal overgrowth. Maybe there's some chronic uh, mold issues as well, some colonized mold issues in the gut. So there's a lot of overlap and it's like patient gets really inundated with all the symptoms and it's hard to parse through, well, what should our next step be? We're going to kind of dive into this topic a little bit deeper than I think most people do. So really excited to dive into that today, man. Oh yeah. You know, so many women, they report to us, we'll have on the intake form, what's your current weight, what's your desired weight. And it's always desired five, 10, 15, 20 pounds less than the current weight. A lot of these women say, look, I feel and look six months pregnant. This bloating hits. I'm not sure what it is. Some women say, hey, I even get bloated when I drink water. Some say they find it's related to whey. 
or some sort of a nut allergy or sensitivity. Some say it might be related to gluten or other types of dairy products. Maybe it's certain uh, grains like rice or corn. So I think there definitely is like a dietary food intolerance aspect to it. But I have so many people that are eating a great diet and they're still having bloating issues and it's usually something deeper. So most of the time you and I see people, they've already been eating better, quote better, you know, it's different for different people, but on average, people have already started to eat more whole foods diets and they still have this problem. Absolutely. So if we look at like the typical month long menstrual cycle, we start out the first half of the cycle is the follicular phase, typically days one through 12, one through 13. This is where, um, you're going to start to see a, let's say, um, FSH starts to increase at the pituitary level. That then starts to grow a follicle. FSH stands for follicle stimulating hormone. That follicle is going to then start to produce and stimulate estrogen. So estrogen is going to start to go up and peak around day 10 of the cycle. So estrogen's peaking like this. And then as estrogen's peaked up, this is where your likelihood of, of having the largest amount of symptoms is the highest because you have a high amount of estrogen and you have a low amount of progesterone. And estrogen will, you know, it will it will cause fluid retention, especially if progesterone is low. Progesterone tends to drop water. Estrogen tends to hold on to water. So in that first 12 days, that's when you're really at this prone, very prone level. And when ovulation starts, typically progesterone is going to be at a tie point, excuse me, uh, estrogen will be at a tie point around day 12. And then progesterone starts to go up around day 12 or 13, and then it's peaked out around day 15. So you have this, this kind of like Estrogen's high, progesterone's coming up. Now this is around day 15. And so where estrogen and progesterone cross, this is where ovulation tends to happen. And so then you have your hormones at the highest level for each right around that time frame. And then as you go into the luteal phase, this is where progesterone's gonna go really high. And then estrogen should be lower. Now, a lot of women, they have a luteal phase defect. They have very low progesterone. They don't have a nice peak progesterone surge, partly because of cortisol and adrenal stress. Because progesterone can pinch hit for cortisol. So the more chronically in, uh, inflamed or stressed a woman is, that progesterone will be lower. And then that will create a lower progesterone imbalance. And that's going to also throw off fluid retention as well. That's why it's very common premenstrually to have this breast tenderness or just feel swollen or have back pain because that progesterone is lower and that's progesterone is really important for muscle relaxation and also helping to flush um, flush water out and so we have this estrogen progesterone kind of balance there out of the gate yeah so do you think this explains why i mean when you look around in society men as well that everyone just you got all this bigness, all this fluid. I mean, the obesity rate in this country is massive. I mean, even since you and I started recording content a decade ago, you know, people are just large. People are just larger. How many of these men out there do you think are walking around with an excess estrogen problem that's a, driving this water retention and bloating? It's a great question. I mean, I think when you look at women, it's different because it's going to have a cyclical correlation with it. And of course, like we live in a very estrogen dominant world with GMOs or pesticides or organochlorine pesticides or plastics all having kind of an estrogen backbone to it, BPA or BPS, which is, you know, hey, this bottle is BPA free, right? It's really just BPS, which is even worse than BPA. People are like, oh, great. I'm doing a good job. No, not really. I mean, sub it for a stainless steel or a glass one, and then you're in a better better place. Um, and then also, yeah, so there's this double-edged sword of like, okay, now you start to gain more fat. And then fat actually is an exocrine hormone in itself, exocrine, exocrine gland, where it'll actually produce estrogen in and of itself. And then if you add an in insulin resistance, insulin will increase and that will cause more sodium retention. And then 
water follows sodium. So as insulin goes up, sodium goes up, water goes up, and then you hold on to that water. That's why I like it. You see someone on an Atkins diet, you know, for every one gram of glucose you drop, you're going to drop three parts of water. And so when you drop carbs, you drop insulin, you drop sodium, and you drop water. And so if you're insulin resistant and you're eating inflammatory foods like processed gluten, flour, grains, maybe processed dairy, now you have more inflammation. Inflammation is driving more cortisol. Cortisol is driving more glucose. Glucose is driving more insulin. Insulin is driving more sodium. Sodium is driving more water. And then you're also producing more fat. Fat produces more estrogen. And thus, the cycle <laughs> continues to perpetuate. I know it's a little confusing, but when you connect the dots, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a runaway train. Mm -hmm. So people hearing this are like, okay, I hear what you're saying. There's a hormone problem here, maybe a dietary problem as well. Where do I start from the testing perspective? Is this something that we can just investigate via blood? Is it necessary to run more functional labs like the urine or the saliva to look at a cortisol or a hormonal rhythm? And that way, where do we approach the testing? Great questions. Let me just go over a couple more scenarios and then we can talk about testing because the, the testing will be more specific to the different scenarios. So first one is we have our typical cycling woman, right? Cycling age, right? Less than 48, typical monthly cycle, 28, you know, 26 to 30 days. Maybe there's some PMS right before menstruation and or right during menstruation, but it's a typical relatively stable cycle. You know, they're going to see more fluid retention in that maybe first day one through 12. Maybe they're going to have some PMS things that involve some fluid retention, uh, swollen breast tissue, back pain, right? There's some different, you know, things that we can do for that. And as women get into their 40s, they're going to be more perimenopause happening where estrogen is actually starting to drop. They may actually experience some hot flashes during their cycle. They may actually experience some menopausal symptoms during their cycle, but they're still having a cycle but they're just starting to feel more like menopause is setting in partly because estrogen levels are dropping. Now, this is important because as estrogen levels drop, this can also weaken pelvic floor muscles. And that weaker pelvic floor muscle could cause more digestive issues because it's going to exacerbate motility. It's going to exacerbate um, just bloating because those intestinal muscles are important for moving um, the food that you're eating in your intestinal tract out. And so that drop in estrogen could be weakening the pelvic floor and it can be exacerbating bloating and digestive issues just because the muscles are not as strong as they should be. So that's important to think about out of the gate. And then of course, as you go full on menopausal, now you're not having a cycle. It's been a one year, right? Now you're kind of menopause to post-menopause, right? Menopause is like that first like one year of not having a cycle. And then as, once you no longer have a cycle, now you're kind of post-menopausal. But post-menopausal, it's a little bit uh, dishonest because you can still have a lot of menopausal symptoms even though your site's been one year since you've not had a cycle. So you can still have hot flashes, mood issues, and skin issues, and libido issues, and vaginal dryness, and, and collagen elasticity issues. So you can still have a lot of other problems even though you're technically you know, post-menopausal. Uh, and then we can also throw PCOS in there when we have essentially a lot of hormonal issues, but now we're having a lot of insulin resistance and insulin is then surging more testosterone and that's causing more androgen growth and that's causing maybe more acne, maybe more hair loss. Uh, it may be causing um, other types of issues, maybe increasing prolactin and throwing off the cycle. The number one cause of PCOS is going to be, should say the number one contributing factor of PCOS is going to be infertility. So PCOS will, PCOS will drive infertility. 25 to 50% of cases. And so anytime someone's complaining about infertility issues, always look at PCOS. And then of course we can look at fibroids or endometriosis, which are typically going to be driven through excess hormonal you know, imbalances, typically on the higher levels on the estrogen side. But those can also drive 
digestive issues, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation. And then obviously that can throw off some of the hormonal and fluid balances issues. As your estrogen drop, that also can throw off fluids and electrolyte issues, and that can also cause fluid retention too. Yeah, there was one paper here that looked at women with endometriosis. They call it endobelly. 96% of women with endometriosis had belly bloating. So this is a big deal of building up a lot of tissue and creating inflammation in the abdomen. So that could be swelling, water retention, bloating, the endometrial-like tissue that can cover or grow into the ovaries, and then trapped blood can then form cyst. So now you've got a cyst problem as well. And then there's also some literature here saying that those with endometriosis are more prone to SIBO. So there you go. So if you're trying to tease this thing apart, you can see why just a short visit in the OBGYN office may not be very helpful because you might get this birth control recommendation, which you and I have heard this story a thousand times. They send them home with birth control, and this is not going to address any of the dysbiosis or other digestive problems internally. Correct. Now, when you're seeing hormonal symptoms that are driving digestive issues, you're typically going to see it more cyclically kind of correlate with the cycle. Uh, and you'll see other usually hormonal-related symptoms kind of correlate with it, whether it's mood, whether it's libido, whether it's skin, hair, right? And so usually with digestive issues, it's going to be more connected to the daily rhythm of your meals during the day. And so we can definitely do stool testing to look and see, is there SIBO? Is there fungal overgrowth, candida? Is there H. pylori? Is there a parasite issue? We can also work on adding in digestive support adding in and getting, getting the diet better and cleaner and see if that helps. A lot of times if we get the diet better and cleaner and we start to have better digestive support there, that can give us feedback if it's digestive or hormonal. Typically hormonal issues take a little bit longer to kind of move the needle on because there's a lot of inertia and momentum you have to move. We're usually, if it's from digestion, we can start to see that improve a little bit sooner. And so that can tell me a little bit clinically about what's happening. When I start to add interventions in and what starts to move the needle, that can tell me about what the root cause potentially is. Yeah, well said. I mean, maybe within what, a week or two, if it's more digestive food intolerance related. I mean, let's yep. just say- let's Or just low, think- someone has low stomach acid. Like we're getting yeah. the stomach acid up and they have low enzymes, that could help too. Well, how about take the woman who is doing salad for her lunch- and she's doing beans or peas or lentils or something for her dinner. I mean, you take that woman off of those things, I would expect to see a reduction in symptoms. I mean, within a couple of days. Yep, definitely. Especially if they're having a a high amount of fermentable foods, high amount of FODMAP foods, especially a lot of raw foods, vegan, vegetarian kind of things, think they're helping their digestion with more raw stuff because there's more enzymes, right? Well, there's a lot of more fermentable fiber. So if the gut bacteria is off, that could be the fertilizer fueling some of that too, right? And a lot of those foods could be very inflammatory. If we're looking at like oxalates or salicylates or phenols, a lot of, we call them anti-nutrients, if you will. There could be a high amount of those that could be really disrupting digestion too. I mean, some of the best looking women, if you can find, whether it's celebrities or uh, internet uh, influencers. And if you see a woman who's like a fitness influencer discussing diet, most of those women, the ones that look the best that have the least bloating, the flattest looking tummies, they're pretty much animal based. They're definitely more meat heavy and less vegetable heavy. They're not just posting a daily salad photo. Yeah. And almost any people like that, that are going in and doing some kind of a picture or video shoot, they're probably going to be going into that with a two or three day fast. And that fast alone is going to decrease inflammation from their diet. It's going to decrease insulin. It's going to decrease their, their electrolytes too, potentially, and and they may have less fluid on them. And so they may look a lot leaner too. And so 
fasting can be helpful, but I always tell patients the fast, the fasting benefits usually come from what you're not eating versus the fast itself. You're not eating the inflammatory foods or it's really helping you to get your insulin back in check. And then the lower insulin is causing less sodium, less sodium, less water. And then also you're not eating the inflammatory foods. So the inflammation and the cortisol starts to go down. And so fasting has some benefits, but you know, it can also be a stressor if you don't have good electrolytes, good hormones, good blood sugar. And so, you know, just, you always take things with a grain of salt, if you will. Yep, for sure. Okay. What about the labs? You ready to talk about those? How do we look into this thing and how do we approach it? Because in most cases, it's not just one thing. It's likely a potential, I'll like to role play with you real quick. So, so, so here, here's the way I would see it mm. is let's say we run the GI map and then you get down to page four and you see, because there's massive dysbiosis, you see there's elevated beta glucuronidase issues. Therefore that's affecting the conjugation and the excretion of excess hormones. So now we know just this glucuronidation problem could be driving the hormonal problem, therefore driving the bloating, but that was all stemming from a gut infection that screwed up that enzyme. Yeah. And so when we look at beta glucuronidase, that enzyme gets high and that makes it harder to detoxify our estrogen. So we may want to add in some binders to kind of help bind up estrogen better. We may add in things like calcium to glucurate or DIM and NAC and glutathione to help us detoxify and help lower the beta glucuronidase. But you have to also get to the root cause of why that beta glucuronidase is there, which is you have to knock down some of that dysbiotic bacteria. You have to make some of those diet changes, to get your enzymes and acids better. And again, you may want to do some testing because there could be a lot of different things overlapping. You could have H. pylori. There could be just your classic small intestinal bacterial overgrowth kind of milieu, which could be Citrobacter proteus, Klebsiella, Morganella, um, Staph strap. It could be all those kind of all the above, if you will, that could be out of balance. You could have some candida issues. Uh, there could even be... E. coli-like toxin, E. coli-like toxin, sugar toxin. It could be Clostridium difficile. There could be a bunch of things. So it's good to get looked at and get tested. You know, you see it a lot in some of your patients that have mold. There could be a lot of colonized mold hanging out, whether it's Fusobacterium or Aspergillus. So it's good to, to rule some of those things out so we don't miss anything. Yeah. And this is not just for your bloating. Okay. I mean, if you type in like glucuronidation cancer, you'll find that liver and colon cancers go significantly up if there's issues with this pathway in the body. So I know sometimes we might be focusing on what may be perceived to the average person as like a, a vanity problem, like, oh, I'm bloated, but really these deeper dives that we do with the functional labs, those are often cluing you into things that could potentially be trying to stop cancer before it occurs. I mean, I've seen women that have had cancer and on paper, unfortunately, we see some of the same things in other women that just don't have a cancer diagnosis yet. So we could take Sally over here, who's got major glucuronidase problems and she's got bloating. And then you've got uh, Jenny over here who she actually has cancer and she looks the same on paper. So I know there's other factors, there's chemicals, et cetera, but it, it is interesting to see that. Yeah. I mean, so one of the first things we're going to look at is just where are we at with estrogens in the environment? We're going to look at that. Do we have a history of being on birth control pills? Are we on birth control pills now? Um, with just a lot of the extra fluid retention, usually sodium goes up. And if sodium goes up, a lot of times potassium can go low because sodium and potassium have this natural relationship. And the DRI, the de daily recommended intake for potassium is around 4,700 milligrams. Most people don't get that. Head over to chronometer.com. Just it's like a MyFitnessPal, but it will look at nutrients. Run a sample there. Run a sample breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You'll find most people don't even get to half the level of potassium they need, which is 4,700 milligrams. Now, I mean, you get about one gram per avocado you get. So avocado is a fast track way to get it. You can get it with some sweet potato. You can get it with some high quality fish or beef. 
Um, people think banana, but banana is much more carby, but it's got half the amount of potassium as an avocado. Avocado is much better, much more blood sugar stabilizing too. Good healthy monounsaturated fat. And so you got to really look at, you know, your nutrients, your macros and get things dialed in. So we can get the potassium up, which is helpful. So in my line, we use a, a powdered potassium just because most potassium capsules are like hundred milligrams a cap. So you're taking 10, 20 caps a day, which can be a little bit annoying. So we'll do a, a powder capsule and mix it with some sea salt together. A lot of people, they'll also do things like that have a natural diuretic like dandelion root. Dandelion root's also really good at gallbladder flow and gallbladder support. So it helps with fat digestion. Well, if you're estrogen dominant, guess what happens to your bioflow, right? Gets stagnant a little bit. And so then it can be harder for you to um, break down fat. And so then this is where you start to get the, um, the gallbladder crystals starting to show up, right? And this wasn't said by me. This was said by a surgeon. I remember I was assisting in a procedure where they were taking out a woman's gallbladder. And um, the doctor turned to me and, yep, she has all the risk factors. And I'm like, what's that? She's like, he goes, the three Fs. I go, what's that? He goes, female, fat, and 40, 40 plus. I'm like, oh. So if you're overweight, makes sense because you're insulin resistant. Now, most people who are overweight, this is back like 20 years ago, the, the low-fat diet was all the rage. And so if you're overweight, you're doing low-fat. Well, the problem is if you're low-fat, what macronutrient tends to go up when you're low-fat? More carb, right? So then if you're low-fat, then you don't empty your gallbladder efficiently. And um, if you don't empty your gallbladder efficiently, those crystals are more likely to, to form. And so got to keep – so if you keep the fats low <laughs> and the carbs go up and then you have estrogen issues, whether it's estrogen dominance, which you could have low, you could have low estrogen and still heavy estrogen dominant because that progesterone has skewed much lower than the estrogen has. So keep that in the back of your head and that can throw off bile flow. So things like dandelion root can be helpful. Now we may be adding hydrochloric acid because hydrochloric acid stimulates cholecystokinin, which causes our gallbladders to contract, which is important. So just getting your HCL up, you can actually help your gallbladder, but we could add in dandelion. We could add in beetroot powder, which I know you use some, for some of your mold patients. So you could be helping people's gallbladder just by helping them metoxify mold indirectly. And then you could add in phosphatidylcholine, taurine, um, actually ox bile in and of itself, extra lipase enzymes and your proteolytic enzyme support. Those are all good options out of the gates. Oh yeah. So get the stool. We could do hormones. So we could do blood. Yep. We could do urine also. Like we could run a Dutch panel and look at all right. the different types of estrogen. You will get some neurotransmitter stuff on there as well. So a lot of times these women are not just bloated. They could be anxious. They could be depressed. They could have chronic fatigue as well. So we're going to help you with the mood issues too. It's just for uh, marketing purposes, we're titling this thing about bloating, but I hear you. And I know that more than just bloating, you have XYZ symptom, which could be the low libido, which is tied into all this. Maybe you just don't feel sexy because you're so damn bloated, right? It could be like a literal vanity thing, or it could be, hey, this bloating is a clue that hormones are really off. And that's why you have no libido. So we hear you about the tangential symptoms that are related to this whole bloating. The bloating is just the thing for us to point and go, oh yeah, that's a problem. And then we're going to help you fill in the blanks of why. So, you know, we can run labs anywhere in the world and help you all out. So if you need help, if you're sick of getting a five minute appointment and being recommended birth control, I mean, I've heard women in their fifties being put on birth control. I'm sure you've heard this too. It's kind of crazy to help their symptoms. It's like, yep, just take birth control and that's it for the appointment. I don't like that. So if you want something better, you know, we can help you. Now, like I always, people say, oh, do dandelion, do this, do birth control pill. It's like, well, what's the mechanism they're trying to, to, to push to then control the symptom downstream? Because if you understand what mechanism they're trying to push, then we can say, is there a better mechanism that can gain control over that without 
these synthetic hormones. And so usually with birth control pills, they're trying to increase estrogen. It's usually an ethanol estradiol, kind of one of those, you know, low, low estrogen type of products. That's going to increase your estrogen. That will then just decrease your FSH. And a lot of times that FSH, for instance, can cause this vasodilation and add into the hot flashes. Now, so they're trying to bring the FSH down by giving more hormone, which then can help with the estrogen symptoms like the, the hot flashes and such. Now, we may use maca. We may use black, co co uh, black cohosh, if you will. So these are different like estrogen modulating herbs. I like the herbs that modulate because they can fit in that receptor site and they can kind of tune it up or tune it down. And then we may also add in progesterone along with that because a lot of times there's this estrogen progesterone imbalance and almost anything synthetic that conventional medicine adds, unless it's like a like a Marina or a Skylar, these are different, or Kylina, these are different like synthetic progesterone IUDs. The problem with those IUDs is they're just leaching progesterone like all the time for literally years at end. And you're not cycling progesterone like it should, right? And so you're not getting that nice luteal phase increase and then drop. You're getting this like low, low trickle, which doesn't really mimic what nature does. And so we may use adaptogenic herbs. We may use progesterone. We also have to be very aware that when you add progesterone in for the first time, it can sensitize estrogen receptor sites so you could feel bloated and flow retention. That's why I always add these things low and slow and steady. We do sublingual. And we may also add in NAC or DIM or support to help with clearance. If we see like 2-methoxy, 2-hydroxy estrogens off, or if we see pyroglutamate or some organic acid markers for detoxification are off, we may throw in additional binders or additional um, support on the estrogen detoxification side too. Yeah. Heck yeah, man. We can do this with urine too. So this is a really fun process. If you yes. don't hear the passion, uh, in our voices, you know, this is a, a, a true fun, enjoyable process to get yourself regulated to where you can feel good. You could look good. You can sleep good. Uh, your mood can be well. So this is a sustainable goal. So I hope that women, if you're listening, you know, maybe get your husbands on board. Maybe they're skeptical and they haven't supported you in this journey of seeking different solutions. Maybe the conventional model has let you down. You need a functional medicine strategy, a plan in place. We're happy to help you do that. So if you have anything else, let us know. And then uh, let's wrap this thing up. Yeah. So just to kind of give like a mind map overview, because I know this is like overwhelming and like my brain always compartmentalize stuff and I create like a little mind map so I can follow it. So the first thing out of the gate with any kind of bloating, the first thing is getting inflammation down in your diet, get better digestion. That's going to be the first thing. Because if we have insulin issues, that's going to cause fluid retention. If we're eating inflammation, that's going to cause cortisol. That's going to cause insulin. That's going to cause excess sodium. And it's going to cause all kinds of problems. Now, obviously the more you're inflamed, the more the hormones go off, the more you can skew progesterone down. You can have estrogen be a little bit higher relatively if you're more of a cycling woman. And then as you go perimenopause, that estrogen's dropping, menopausal dropping, dropping, dropping. And this is where we have to add in more interventions regarding estrogen progesterone. And this is where we start to have a lot of this lower, um, this kind of lower, um, what was the word? Like the core, the lower part of the core, right? That lower core area starts to become very weak, right? Yeah, the pelvic muscle. Pelvic floor is the better word. Yeah, that lower core floor starts to become weaker. And this is where doing squats or lunges or single leg step ups, like doing strong functional movements can be great. Um, I did a podcast with a woman. She has this ball that you sit on and you squeeze your butt muscles too. That can be helpful. But she always she said in that podcast, doing step ups and lunges. So doing those good single leg movements where you really activate your core on the, on the front and then 
that will also help activate the core from below that pelvic floor part of your core. Because really the, 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 the core is you have the front muscles here. This is your rectus abdominis and then your external and internal obliques. Then you have the back muscles, which are going to be your rectus spinae and multifidi. And then you have the pelvic floor on the bottom and then your diaphragm on the top. So you get this box happening right here. Get this box happening. Oh, you put a thing on screen. Go yeah, ahead. I, I found I found a little graph on this just to help yes. women kind of look and plot where they could be in terms of age. So on the horizontal axis here, you've got your age. And then over here on the vertical axis, you have your average hormone production. So I mean, on average, you're peaking maybe mid to late 30s with your estrogens. And then by the time you're 50, you know, you've had a massive, massive decline on average. There's way geekier graphs out there, but I think this is just a simple way to look. And if you look back at your life and where you felt good compared to where you are now with your age and your symptoms, I hope this would help explain a little bit of it. 100%. And it's it's good to look at the root underlying cause of why you're here. Um, first thing I recommend is find a good practitioner because you're going to want to get testing, especially if these issues are more chronic or you're going in to perimenopause or these issues have been going on for quite a while and you've gone to your conventional medical doctor and they said, hey, birth control pill, antidepressant. Or as you get older, they're maybe recommending um, an IUD or maybe they're recommending super high dose of bioidenticals and you want to do something more natural. Bioidenticals can be great. You just got to look at the dose and dial things up. I mean, with women, I'll recommend 25 to 50 milligrams starting out with progesterone. I'll see some more natural-minded OBs go up to 300 milligrams, maybe a little bit high, right? Especially if you fix the adrenals, fix the gut, and all the inflammation gets better, you may not need as much of that. So it's good to look kind of deep in that. Check this what graph out too. This is uh, pretty interesting here. This is just looking at women, you know, 35 and beyond really starts this decline on average here, 75% reduction in progesterone from ages 35 to 50, my Lord. And then estrogen on average, 35% reduction from age 35 to 50. Yeah, absolutely. And then at some point, estrogen may need to be added in. I typically do not recommend adding estrogen in until the ovaries are kind of no longer functioning, if you will. We're in that kind of menopausal time frame. Then it may make sense you know, it's been a year or so since you've had a period, we may use more herbal support to modulate estrogen. And then once it's been a year, we may start to add in some bits of bioidentical estrogen based on lab testing, tend to more favor more of the estriol support because it tends to be a little bit more cancer protective as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a controversial subject. We should do a whole part two, three on that. Yes. But then I do like here how on this graph, it's showing the big gap here between estrogen and progesterone around age 50 and how this yep. is really why you see so many women not very happy and not very horny at age 50. Yeah, and that's where the progesterone is really important for water uh, decrease too, right? It can help with water decrease. And for more estrogen dominant, right, progesterone is lower in this gap here. This is where we're going to have some problems. So, you know, I think that's a, a really great point. And then just to highlight that too, when we talk about hormones, a lot of times conventional medicine misses the adrenals because the adrenals are the backup generator as you go into menopause. And if you go into menopause, then your backup generator is on empty, right? Let's you Now let's switch to the backup generator in your house. If it's on empty, you don't have the propane to support it. The storm comes, now it doesn't work. And so now you need more hormones, more support because the adrenals aren't there to pick up the slack. And part of how I think we get better results than most other hormone specialists is we really look at the adrenals too, because those are what's responding to your day in, day out stress. And that's what produces your cortisol rhythm, which is daily, not just your menstrual cycle, which is monthly.
Yeah, well said. Well, if people want to reach out, they can get help from you directly. That's Dr. J, Dr. Justin Marcajani. That is at the website, justinhealth.com, justinhealth.com, consults anywhere worldwide, and me, Evan Brand, at evanbrand.com. We're happy to help you all. We'd love the opportunity to be able to run some of these labs and investigate this with you and hold your hand through this process. You know, it can be very, I don't want to say scary, but we'll just say yeah. this. A lot of women, they try to fix themselves. And then they listen to a webinar and a podcast and a blog and they buy this supplement and they buy this probiotic and they buy this enzyme. And now they're 22 and a half supplements into this thing and they don't know what the hell they're doing and they don't know how to get better. We end up saving them money and time by simplifying, but also targeting the protocol to their issues. There's a hundred things you could take that might help and can't hurt, but really is that what you need or do you need a smaller targeted plan. And that's really our goal. hundred percent. And I know you deal with a lot of mold issues and mold can impact estrogen too. And so we see that a lot too. So it's very important to get your gut looked at, potential mold looked at, and you may have colonized mold going on in the gut. And that, that's a, an important thing. And if you have mold in the gut, then, then where do you look next? You got to look in the environment. When you go down the rabbit hole of mold, it can get very overwhelming. It can get very costly unless you have people to help you navigate it and kind of do it the most cost efficient way as possible. So just when you guys are thinking about this, don't get overwhelmed. We're here to help uh, assess, not guess. So evanbrand.com for, for Evan and then justinhealth.com for me. We're here to help and put your comments down below. We'll be responding to those. Evan, any last words, my friend? Uh, well, it sounds like we're going to have to do part two, mold, bloating, yeah. <laughs> estrogen. So yes. let's plan that. Let's do it, brother. All right, man. You have a good day. All right. Take care. All right. Peace.